And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here with the uh, latest episode of The Bridge. It's Wednesday, and you know what that means. It means smoke, mirrors, and the truth with Bruce Anderson. A can of pet food, where every ingredient matters. Some companies like to brag about their first ingredient, but the Acana Pet Food team is proud of their entire bag. That's because every recipe has been thoughtfully sourced and carefully crafted with the highest quality ingredients, starting with quality animal ingredients, balanced with whole fruits and vegetables. Acana Pet Foods are rich in the protein and nutrients your dog or cat needs to feel and look their best. Available in grain-free, healthy grains and singles for sensitive dogs. Acana. Go beyond the first ingredient. Hello there, Peter Mansbridge in Toronto today. Bruce is in Ottawa. And uh, yesterday, we actually sat down and we're able to talk in person to each other for the first time in almost a year because I was in Ottawa. And we uh, we grabbed a quick lunch at... That was well, so exciting. It was. I saw it, not just your, your upper body for the first time. I saw the entire pandemic <laughs> Mansbridge in person and it was just a joy. And I knew we were going to have a great day, Peter. And I knew today was going to be good. But then after the Habs won late last night, I knew that you were going to be even in the best, probably the best mood I've seen you in since I'm, this pandemic I'm happy. Started. I mean, you seem to forget. that. And in a Stanley mm-hmm. Cup, you need a goalie, a real goalie. Yeah. A goalie yeah. you can 100% count on. And they've got the best goalie in the world. And so anything's possible. And, it, you know, game after game, it's just... it. it it's really quite something to watch. Um, but we had this kind of when, when Bruce is trying to make fun of the fact that I'm, you know, almost four weeks now uh, carb free, a no carb diet. Now, it didn't work out too well yesterday at lunch because the little restaurant we met in just so happens to be that we're both a minority partners in this restaurant. Gia Cantina in the Glebe in Ottawa on Bank Street. It's a great, great little place. It's kind of like a hole in the wall, but the best food you're ever going to get. And I'm afraid it's not carb free. You know, it's um, you know, it's a little Italian place. It's really good, like really good. I'd say that we're working on carb free, but we're not really. We're working on great meals that taste delicious, and probably in our advertising. Our social media, we're probably not going to say it's a hole in the wall, but I understand your point. It's a great little spot. And, it's and about to be a bigger hole in the wall. We're if expanding. you got there, you didn't walk there. You didn't drive there. No. Nope. You got on a plane. I went what was that a, like? It, you know what? It, it's different. That was my first flight experience in 15 months. And I flew Air Canada up in the morning. I actually had a speech in Ottawa um, yesterday, and that's the main reason I was there. And then I flew back later in the afternoon. And um, you know, flights to back and forth to Ottawa from Toronto were every hour before the pandemic. There, I think there's three flights a day now. Like, it's crazy. And there's not very – when I flew up in the morning, the plane wasn't one-third full. It was uh, quite a bit busier on the way back. Uh, late in the afternoon. Um, but the experience of the airports yesterday morning at Pearson, man, it's like a ghost town. Uh, and the Ottawa airport, even fewer people around. Very, 
you know, it, it's a little bit depressing because I love airports, as you know, listeners know. I, you know, I love the whole feel of an airport. I used to love, you know, reading books like Arthur Haley's Airport because they're like a little city in themselves. Uh, but they don't look like that now. Now, hopefully that's all about to change through this summer and into this fall as things hopefully to start returning to some kind of normalcy. Um, but right now it's a strange experience. Everything went on time. You know, the flight was on time. You know, the people were friendly, the flight attendants, you know, the ticket counter agents, all of that stuff, everything everything worked fine. Even the security people, the thousands of people we hire for security, I've never quite understood why there needs to be so many people on the security line. But uh, it, it, it all, you know, it all worked fine. But it, it, it all it works was, fine. It was. I was reading experience. in the States that the TSA, that's the transportation safety people there, recorded um, kind of a new record since the pandemic started. Anyway, about 2 million passengers went through uh, U.S. airports. Yeah. And that's still below the pre-pandemic numbers, but they're they're coming back. Yeah, and They're coming back. Yeah. You know, in, in my work on the vaccine question, there's no doubt that the single biggest reason why people who might be hesitant will agree ultimately to get the vaccination, those who will, it's the ability to travel. And hassle-free travel, to be able to go places without a whole bunch of rules surrounding you and inconveniences that didn't exist before and might not exist for people who have vaccinations. So good for you, Peter, for getting on a plane and coming to Ottawa and staying Gia Cantina on bank and first (laughs) in the fleet. And what great food is there. It's great (laughs) food, and we strongly recommend it. Um, All right. This is uh, an important day in the parliamentary calendar because it could be the last day of this particular parliamentary session and quite possibly the last day of this parliament before an election because the expectation is still it might be called in, you know, sometime this summer, probably in mid to late August. But um, tell me about today because on the last day of a session, if you don't get certain things done with certain bills, they die. Kind of, like, yeah. They don't happen, yeah. especially if there's an election call in the summer. Um, and there's some big ones on the table, uh, Parliament right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the budget bill is still to be passed, and the um, and there's a bill that's been a, a bit controversial in some quarters of the country and a bit noisy in the Ottawa precinct called C10, which is about the rena- uh, renewal of the Broadcasts and Telecommunications Acts, and. Uh, but really what we've been into for the last little while, Peter, has been, the, um, I think, a growing awareness on the part of the parties that they're probably heading to the polls. Uh, and that, uh, and so the positioning that is happening is happening because, you know, parties want to be able to go to the people and say certain things. The Liberals, you know, are have been saying for some days now with increasing uh, levels of kind of stress in their voices that, they think that the conservatives are obstructing uh, passage of important bills. And that's a precursor to saying to voters, we couldn't get the work done that we wanted to do for you uh, because the conservatives kept holding things up. So give us a mandate to go back into government and to, and to do the work that matters for you. And C10 for the government, especially in the province of Quebec, it seems, is an important uh, message because it really 
they the way the conservatives talk or the liberals talk about it, they talk about it being a bill that causes a big tech. But what they really mean is the big streaming services and also the uh, the social media companies, uh, Facebook uh, among them, uh, to pay taxes and be regulated the same way as as other companies are that operate in the broadcast and telecommunications sector. So they want to talk about that uh, bill in Quebec, especially, and um, the conservatives want to talk about how they're stopping it, how they're fighting it, because they see it as an attack on free speech, that if you if you make YouTube videos about your cat, you're going to end up being regulated by government. And there's a, there's some exaggeration, frankly, on both sides of, uh, of this argument. And so it's, there's a little bit of posturing, but at the, at the bottom of it, there's a substantive piece of legislation. Um, there's the budget bill, uh, which is, you know, obviously an easier bill in a way for government to talk about saying, you know, we, we couldn't get this done. Um, and, uh, and to set up a fight with the conservatives in the context of an election campaign saying we needed to ask for a mandate. Um, so that's a little bit of what's going on right now, but mostly I think that um, the tensions around the House of Commons, this parliament, have really been growing for some time, and there's just not that much interest in trying to work together on any part right now. There's a lot of animosity and acrimony. The pandemic has made everybody exhausted, and I think that um, uh, it seems almost inevitable at this point that there's going to be an election uh, before this particular group of parliamentarians sits again. Um, and uh, today will be the day. I, I think the last day. Let me. Um, well, let me talk about the election thing for, here for a minute because uh, you know it's been an interesting week. There've been a, a number of new uh, polls, uh, research analysis put out. Uh, Nanos, well-respected uh, company, um, Abacus, your own company, uh, has put out. And while the, some of these numbers are, are different, there is a common thread to them, and that is that the Liberals are ahead. Uh, the conservatives are in, uh, you know, are in some trouble. Uh, the Nanos one is really is quite a wide gap between the uh, the Liberals and the Conservatives and the NDP. Depending on which one you 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 look at, the NDP are either doing really well above their um, normal, uh, playing above their normal weight, as they say, but um, the uh, uh, but but they're doing well in in all of the polls. Now, I I have a caveat here. Uh, which is I've always been a, a great believer in what Mulroney used to say. There's, you know, nothing focuses the mind like a hanging or an election. Good morning, yeah. Or an election, That's... right? Uh, yeah. That when you actually get there and you have to make a decision, it can sometimes be different than the one you kind of talked about a couple of months before a campaign. Um, so with that in mind, uh, and we've both seen campaigns uh, where, you know, Things started poorly for a party, uh, and that party ended up winning. Um, you know, Mulroney was an example in uh, in '84. Turner was ahead um, when the campaign started and lost it. Kim Campbell was ahead in '93, and uh, you know, and lost it. But the old rule of thumb used to be, and it is an old rule of thumb. I mean, it's old because I <laughs> I remember it, and it, but it was a different era. The old rule of thumb used to be that if you had a 10-point lead at the beginning of a campaign, and in those days the campaigns were 60 days long, it were roughly two months, um, now they're you know almost half that, uh, you couldn't lose it in 60 days. It just, 
was unlikely that you could lose a 10 point lead. That's nobody kind of talks that way anymore because we live in a different era and we certainly live in a different era of the movement of information and things can change not just in a, in a month or two, they can change in a day or two. Um, mm-hmm. So I put all those caveats on the table and you tell me right. what all this data is telling you. Uh, you know, first thing is I'm still writing down, you said that there were some other polling companies and I, I didn't know about that. So I was writing those names down. I was going to try and look <laughs> them up There's so many after, polling companies in this country. It's out, crazy. Like that. Yeah. So Peter, look, I think there's really two things to know and it doesn't really solve this dilemma that you're positing. Um, one is fewer people pay attention to politics than has ever been the case in my life. Um, now, people who are listening to this podcast probably hear me say that and say, Anderson's crazy. Like, we're, like, deeply interested in politics. And, of course, if they're listening to this podcast, chances are they are. Mm. But um, there's a lot of people still that aren't. They, they probably should listen to this podcast. But, the, you know, there's a lot of people for whom politics is – just not a thing that they get preoccupied with. There's so many other things going on in their lives. And so the politicians certainly experience how hard it is to capture the imagination and the attention of Canadians Uh, during an election campaign. It's easier. The rest of the time, it's really hard, but it's harder than it used to be. No question about it. So you can have a situation where a 37 day campaign can happen and almost nothing can change. I think that's plausible more now than it has ever been at the same time. Because parties don't have the same root system, people don't grow up saying, my parents voted uh, conservative, so I'm a conservative. And I've kind of followed the conservative party or the liberal party from birth almost to understand what it stands for and why it might be relevant to me. That doesn't exist uh, anymore. And so we can have, especially in this age of social media, really combustible events that change the course of an election on a dime. I mean, I I think Justin Trudeau started in 2015. He was probably in third place. And I think the hope or the expectation at best for the liberals was that they would get to second. That's why they they could make so many promises that uh, in some cases they have not fulfilled because they never expected they were going to be in that that, position. Yeah. So I think it's fair to say that it's plausible either that this election will happen and that the numbers that we see at the start will be more or less what we see at the end. Um, but it's also possible that events can happen, that a leadership debate turns into something which is galvanizing for people. They see something in somebody that they either love or they hate, um, and, uh, and that can really matter. There's always been this thesis that advertising was the most important thing, and I think it is hugely important, but I don't think it's as important as it used to be. I don't think everybody has the same level of attentiveness to the media platforms that deliver the advertising. And I think also people have become a little bit more inured to it in the sense that you can watch it and you can see it for what it is. And you can say, okay, I understand what they're trying to say to me, uh, but I understand they're trying to say it to me so that I will change the way that I think or the way that I vote. So Peter, just to set the table from the standpoint of what abacus data is telling us, uh, I guess there are some other polling companies, but here's the here's the numbers that I'm kind of looking at right now. So and you're I'm comparing. You're telling people that when they're sitting there having their Gia Cantina sandwich, they can right? be looking at the latest Abacus data surveys. You're trying oh, to squeeze yeah. all your 
all your properties into one conversation here. Maybe we'll have little place cards, you know, maybe there'll be like uh, free Wi-Fi access if you just start at the advocate site. But look, I, I think that the, there's a few things to bear in mind. If we compare to 2019, which was a good outcome for the liberals, but not the outcome that they wanted, a minority government, right? Heading into that election, 35% approved of the Trudeau government. Today, the number is 44 Heading into that campaign, 33% had a positive impression of Justin Trudeau. Today, that number is 38. Heading into that campaign, 33% has a, had a positive impression of Andrew Scheer. Today, 19% have a positive impression of Aaron O'Toole. And the last one is that heading into that election, 53% of voters said they wanted, they definitely wanted a change in government. Today, that number is 38 so all of those things are a better starting point for the Liberals than in 2019, and not by a little bit, by a significant amount. And so there's real challenges here, I think, for the Liberals not to get ahead of themselves, not to assume too much, not to assume that things can't go wrong. But obviously for the Conservatives, there's uh, there's some real challenges in those numbers that have been building up for some time. Yeah, I mean... The other way to look at it for the conservatives is there's there's almost no other way than up. You know, they're they're pretty they're close to their kind of base vote. Um, they've been nibbled away a little bit. I, I, I noticed that the uh, Bernier's party is up around four or five percent, which doesn't sound like much and it's not much, but it all came out of the conservatives. Well, some polls, it's eight in Alberta, right? So I think that, they, you know, you're probably right, Peter, that they can't go any lower. But I think the challenge that they have is is a worse, ver- a worse challenge than we've seen since the Mulroney version of the progressive conservative party. And it is that this tension between uh, Alberta conservatism and central and eastern Canada conservatism has really renewed itself. Um, and Aaron O'Toole is kind of feeling the pain of that. It's not the first time that existed, but he's feeling a version of it that's worse than Andrew Scheer felt and something that Stephen Harper was very good at tamping down, uh, in part because he represented Alberta, uh, but also because he was a he was a pretty tough disciplinarian when it came to these kinds of things. So, like, yesterday, it really... Uh, I don't know if I, the right word is interesting development, but a, a kind of a, an important development was that there was a bill about conversion therapy, which is a controversial uh, practice designed by some people who say that they are practitioners who can make a gay person decide not to be gay anymore. So to everybody who's listening to this podcast who thinks, well, gay isn't a choice and it doesn't sound right to have people offering a, a service that is designed to pressure uh, young people who are gay into deciding not to be gay. So that was at the heart of what this bill was about, that the liberals put on the, uh, on the table. And more than half of the conservative caucus voted against that bill. Now, some of the conservative caucus voted for that bill. And my point is, uh, too, really, I think for the conservatives, is how in 2021 can you still be confused about what side of that issue you want to be on? And how um, can Aaron O'Toole imagine running a comfortable campaign as leader of this party 
if on a bill like that, he's got the majority of his uh, parliamentarians, I think it was 62 uh, of his uh, MPs voting one way and the rest voting another way. That just didn't didn't make, make any sense to me in terms of how this party is going to enter this campaign, especially after Aaron O'Toole taking the leadership said, I want Canadians to wake up in the morning and look at the Conservative Party and see themselves in it. So I think they may have a little bit worse problem because they've got this tension where uh, not all those Western Conservatives love Aaron O'Toole and the centrist Conservatives in Eastern Canada don't know that they like the Conservative Party as it sits today. Uh, So they've got an extra challenge. It's not just about beating the Liberals for them. It's about figuring out exactly what they're going to put on the table. It seems to me like the Liberals slipped that one in, the conversion therapy bill, legislation, whatever we call it. Sounds like they slipped that one in on purpose. Well, they've been talking about it for a while, and it, you know, it's Pride Month, and there's been a big conversation in society, of course, about diversity and inclusion for some years. So um, it's not like this is the first time this has come up. You can see it coming a mile away, and um, yeah, but the timing is timing is interesting. You know, just before an election, split the opposition party on a key. Well, on an issue that is of, you know, uh, importance to society one way or the other. And they, you know. Parties do this to each other all the time, right? They sort of uh, remember that the conservatives said that they were going to run in 2019. They were going to run to repeal the carbon price. Well, the carbon price is still there. And we have not heard them really talk about it. In fact, we've heard Aaron O'Toole say he's going to do some version of the same right. thing now. But they're going to run to repeal this telecom act, which, let's be honest, not very many people know anything about it. So the idea that this is going to be the, the crusade that rallies Canadians to the conservative um, place on the ballot, I don't see it. But just as you say, well, okay, maybe the Liberals kind of set this little trap basically for the Conservatives to walk into, you kind of go, well, yeah, but couldn't the Conservatives have said it's a trap and we're not going to walk into it and we're going to vote for this piece of legislation and everybody's going to be surprised maybe that we were so clear-eyed about it. Um, So, yeah, I take your point and I I think that's all part of uh, parties establishing the differences between them. Um, but I I don't know. I, I still feel like if you want, if you're a party and you're running to win office in Canada and you don't stop and think about, well, what is a gay person going to make of our vote against this bill? You know, didn't, didn't somebody in that conservative caucus want to stand up and say to the others in that caucus meeting, do you think that, that, you know, I could get a therapist who could convince you to change your sexual orientation? Because that sounds ludicrous, right? And if if a conservative politician said it to another conservative politician, both straight, you could you could imagine in that room people would go, "Oh shoot, of course." How would it sound like to a gay person if we said, "Well, we have to we have to oppose this bill because." There's no answer after that because, I mean, they'll have language, and I saw them tweeting a little bit about it, but these social inclusion issues have bedeviled conservatives for a long time. And, uh, and there's I think only one guy who didn't let it get in the way, and that was Harper. He made yeah. sure it didn't get in the way. And, and made sure. And he won. 
you know, and he won what yes. win three elections. Yeah, uh, by making sure of that. All right. Well, I mean, let's let's agree, as I'm sure many conservatives will agree at this point, is that they have a difficult hill to climb on a number of fronts, um, especially when they remember that in 2019, it was a yeah, sure, it was a liberal minority government. Um, if we remember, but the by conservatives, the, way we- the conservatives won the election in terms of popular vote by what three or four points, so they had a lead in the in the numbers they did in, they did in, in that sense of the uh, of election day and their started their starting point in this one at least right now is considerably far back from the liberals it is so they it is <laughs> it's a tough road ahead but it's not an impossible road can uh, i just add one last thing because I, I your point about harper having tampness down i think is a really good one but the last punctuation for me on it is the election he lost he lost because he allowed a debate to happen about a tip line for barbaric social practices and a debate about kneecaps and the citizenship ceremony. And you're right in the phrasing of that. He allowed it. He was already in trouble in those polls in that campaign. And, and the advice to him from some corners was the only way to get it back is you got to get your base back and you got to do this. And he, he did allow it. Um, so you're, you're quite right. He lost. Yeah. And he lost. He lost. Okay. Um, let's talk vaccines. Uh, but let's talk them right after this. Mansbridge in Toronto, Bruce Anderson in Ottawa. We're back with Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth on this edition of The uh, Bridge for this Wednesday. And uh, you're listening either on uh, Sirius XM Canada, uh, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or you are listening on whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And uh, wherever you're coming to us, we uh, we welcome you to it. Um, okay, let's discuss the, uh, the vaccine issue because... There's actually a number of interesting things happening on this front. When you look at the numbers, and I'm looking at them right now, uh, the latest Canada numbers are pretty are pretty impressive, and they they continue that flow that we started about and talked about a lot last week with uh, Anita Anon, the Minister of Procurement, in terms of the amount of vaccines coming into the country and and them being administered. So, in terms of Eligible Canadians, so in other words, 12 and over. The latest numbers, this is of last night, 76, over 76% of eligible Canadians, 12 and over, have received at least one dose. That's a huge number. It's phenomenal. It's a phenomenal number. When you consider in the States, their promise, Biden's promise was 70% by July 4th. He's not going to make it. They admitted that yesterday. Things have really slowed down on the uh, vaccine acceptancy on the part of a lot of people, especially in the southern U.S., and there are indications they're starting to pay a price for that uh, with the Delta variant. Anyway, we're at 76, over 76%. The number of uh, Canadians fully vaccinated, so in other words, they're both their doses, is now uh, close to 24%. Now, just two weeks ago, when, uh, when I got my second shot, it was 8%. So that's how fast it's moving up, right? 
Yeah. 24%, almost a quarter of Canadians who are eligible, that's 12 and over, are fully vaccinated. So, you know, you look at those and you go, this is great. It's moving, it's moving fast and we're getting lots of vaccines. The uh, supply does not seem to be an issue. Um, they're coming in by the millions. As, you know, Isaac Bogosh said to us the other day, it's flooded. You know, we're flooded with vaccines and that's fantastic. We're puts us in a great position. But at that picture, you're noticing an area that we should be concerned about. And what's that? Yeah, I'm worried about only one thing really in this. And I'm um, and it has to do with the second shot. So we've got, you know, almost 96 percent who either have had a shot, say they're going to get a shot, say they could be persuaded to get a shot, only 6% who say, I'm not ever going to take it. So we're probably going to get a very large number who take that first shot. Uh, But this week in our polling, we asked for the first time, how do you feel about the importance of that second shot? Is it essential to your health, to the protection of your health and to the ending of the pandemic? Is it a good idea to get the second shot, but maybe not essential? Or would you say that you think the first shot is really sufficient in in terms of the protection that you think that we need? And what we find is a quarter of Canadians say the first shot is sufficient or it's a good idea to get the second, but it's not absolutely necessary. So that's a fairly big number. Right now, we only have, I think it's 2% of those who've had a shot who say they might or might not get that second shot. So most people, the large majority, almost everybody who's had a shot, Peter, are saying, I'm going to get that second shot. But underneath the surface, we can tell from these numbers that some of those people who say they're going to get that shot also aren't sure it's absolutely necessary. And when we look at the difference between young people and old people, or older people, I shouldn't say old people, older people, because I'm in the oldest category that I'm going to describe here. (laughs) So people who are 60 and older, just like mature, let's call them mature people. Only 9% of people in our age group think that that second shot is not essential. Only 9%. But among people who are 18 to 29, that number is 43% who say, ah, maybe the first shot is enough. Maybe the second shot's a good idea, but it's not essential. So we need to make sure as a society that we finish the job with those second shots and the data are telling us that if there's going to be a problem, it's going to be young people kind of having heard, oh, that first shot causes so much protection and the infection rates are coming down and life is busy and we can get back to doing regular things and maybe I won't find the time to get that second shot. So it's not that they doubt the science necessarily of or the value of or the safety of, it's it's more that they... Uh, maybe they've been hearing that that first shot provides a lot of protection and um, and maybe the pandemic is behind us. So it's an important signal to keep an eye on and for um, vaccine promotion uh, groups to uh, to work on. I, I still find it a puzzle why that age group is, you know, is kind of balking at the, uh, at the finish line here and don't think it's necessary. I mean, every piece of advice they're getting you know, every discussion about the Delta variant, and you see this happening literally around the world. There, there's, it's almost like a stampede to the second shot. 
pushed by government yeah. saying this is a problem. You know, at first I thought the whole Delta variant thing was being overblown somewhat to try to get people into the line for first vaccines, not just second, uh, but for those who still were uh, holding back. I even suggested it to Dr. Bogach the other day. I said, you know, is this like, like how real is this? Or is this like a scare tactic? And he said, no, 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 <laughs> it's This is the real deal. And, you know, you can look in the southern states right now. It's, it's a huge problem. Um, and obviously Bojo thought it was a big problem in, in Britain and, and held off for at least another month the reopening uh, in the UK. Uh, so, well, one I, of the I things don't get it. I don't understand why they're, why, yeah. why they're hesitant. Well, separate and apart from the pandemic and, and the vaccines, you know, there is a, a phenomena where young people tend to feel more health invincible. Um, and so that's a contributing factor, no question about it. Um, you know, throughout the pandemic, we did see them more likely to say, if I got it, it wouldn't be that severe. Um, I'd rather, you know, go back to doing some of my normal life activities because I'm not that afraid of it. But I want to be careful not to characterize what is still at the end of the day, a minority of young people uh, as though they're the majority. Like there is a, a schism, I would say, between young people, between those who are very cautious, very responsible, very preoccupied with protecting their health and the health of other ones, uh, others that they care about, and who have been um, living diligently by all of the rules and the protocols and supporting uh, policies in those areas. But there are some others for whom this is felt like a bigger inconvenience than they think is warranted. And, uh, and, and maybe that sense of invincibility plus a, uh, having heard so many times that that first shot causes, uh, a lot or creates a lot of protection that in their minds, there's a rationality almost to saying, well, I'll probably get it, but it's, I'll probably get the shot, but maybe it's not really essential. So they're not saying they won't get it. Um, and I don't want to overstate the risk, but if somebody asks me, where does the risk exist? The biggest risk of us falling short of the measure that we need in order to have that community, that community immunity, um, it, it's going to be around that second shot and with, with people under 40. And the incentive may well come from what you were suggesting earlier, uh, you know, the travel issue. You know, young people want to travel. They don't want to travel just within the country, as important as that is. They want to travel around the world. And the, the continuing indications are that we're getting close to some kind of vaccine passport. You can call it any number of different things, but in some places it already exists. It's probably going to exist here in Canada as well. You're going to have to prove that you've had a couple of, uh, of shots uh, to get yeah. on, on certain flights. And, yep. and to get into certain places. So, yeah. you know, the, that will be the big incentive at some point. When you look at your data, um, what does the pathway show to you in terms of uh, a country that has uh, had at least one shot or, or is fully vaccinated? What, what numbers do you think we're looking at at the end of the day? Or let's say by the end of the summer, what do you think we're, we're going to be at? Um, well, 
you know, until I saw these numbers on the second shot, I was thinking we're going to be, you know, close to 90%, maybe a little bit over, maybe a little bit under on that first shot. And, and pretty close to that number on the second shot. And I still think that we can get there. Um, A, I think the vaccines are going to be available. B, I actually think as complicated as our system is for some people who are trying to figure out, okay, did I get the first shot before this date? And was it this kind of shot versus another kind of shot? And where can I get it at a clinic or a pop-up clinic or a pharmacy? Or do I book online or do I phone or do I walk in? There's a lot of that. But that goes away the more people who've already had the shot and the more vaccines that come into the market. So my assumption is that July is going to seem a lot easier for people to get a shot. August is going to seem a lot easier for people to get a shot. Um, I know that advertising is in the market. I'm working on one. You're, you're helping me with it. This, uh, this coalition called Faster Together, 240 organizations that are all pushing messages out into the market saying, you know what? If you want to travel, if you want to go back to on-campus uh, school, if you want to um, see your businesses uh, strengthen, this is a step that's important to take. I also think that there are going to be some businesses, um, and I know that people are really struggling with what's the right thing to do, what's the ethical thing to do, but I'm following the news in the United States, and I know that there are some companies, large companies, large employers, that are saying, if you're going to come back and work in our office, you're going to have two vaccinations. You're going to be fully vaccinated. And if you're not, you're not coming back into our offices. Now, some of those businesses might end up getting sued by those employees. And I know that there's going to be a real hesitation uh, in some areas to do it. But there are also sports franchises that have figured out, okay, we, we can have a fully vaccinated part of our stadium and a not fully vaccinated part of our stadium. And I think that if there are some of those things, um, over time, it will encourage enough people to get the shot in Canada because the will is basically there. It's not people saying, you know, my keys are going to stick to my head. It, that, that, that exists, but it's a very small number in Canada. Uh, it's people saying, I don't know if I really need this. And, um, and one way or another, I think we just need to remind them that going to events with other people, music festivals, concerts, sports events, going back to the workplace, getting on transit, all of those things, um, they depend on us uh, getting these shots and looking out for each other a little bit. So bottom line, you figure both those numbers are going to at least be in the 80s. I think so. I think so. I think we're going to have a very high water mark in, in Canada because uh, – I think what we've proven to ourselves is that our instinct is to uh, is to take the advice of the experts, to trust the medicine, trust the science, and to look out for each other a little bit. Okay, uh, that kind of wraps it up for today. But I would be amiss if I didn't ask you because a lot of our listeners have been asking, "How did it work out with the pump?" I love the letter I got from that person who was was concerned that you were drawing water from a creek that you weren't allowed to. Now, he was thinking you were in Ontario, but it's in Quebec. uh, And there's probably some rules, but it's not it's not like you're diverting the Ottawa River or something into. I didn't I didn't dam up the creek and uh, and take off the water. No, Uh, it's been a great week uh, in the life of our crops. Uh, We've had lots of sun. We've had some actual rainfall 
And, you know, I'm probably the least mechanical person that you know. You, you live in a, a smaller community. You're probably surrounded by people who know a lot about mechanical things. And I've kind of been an urban kid since I was about 15. I lived in a small town before that, but I didn't do much <laughs> That was mechanical then. I was more into baseball. But anyway, uh, I never learned anything about mechanics. So for me, buying a gas-powered pump and putting a hose in the creek and having it spray water on a garden, probably nobody who's listening to us thinks that's a big deal, but that's a big accomplishment for me. (laughs) And I was so excited. If I sent you the video of me cursing with joy, at the at the spray of water that came out (laughs) yeah you'd probably share it with everybody and that would just embarrass me but there is that video i was so excited that it happened and i'm gonna go and check out the crops later today and i'll uh, i'll have more information to share maybe i'll post a picture on uh, on twitter you did remember to turn the pump off before you left last time did you oh yeah yeah i literally i had to connect four or five things and put some gas in a motor and pull a little starter cord. And I got all of that done. I was pretty, I was pretty pleased with myself. Well, I'm proud of you. That's great. Thank you. Um, I, we should let everybody know that while the uh, bridge is going on hiatus at the end of this week, uh, for a while, I'm not sure for how long it's, it's all dependent on when this election may be called, because obviously when the election is called, we're back at it full, uh, full steam. And we're planning some really interesting stuff for our, for our election shows um, during the campaign this year, if in fact it does happen. However, while the bridge is on hiatus, smoke mirrors and the truth will not be. So every Wednesday from wherever we happen to be, we could be on one of those little patio chairs outside Gia Cantina on Bank Street in Ottawa (laughs) (laughs) doing the podcast. Uh, But we will do it and we'll keep you up to date on all things uh, that are of interest. Uh, to you and to us, and we look forward to doing that. So Wednesday, Smoke, Mirror, and the Truth will always uh, will always be around. And if something you know remarkable happens, obviously we will figure out a way to be uh, uh, back on the air uh, in a moment's notice as well. Um, so that is uh, that's it for today. Thank you, uh, sir. We'll let you get out and uh, check your pump and make sure all uh, all is good. It was great to see you yesterday, and uh, look forward to seeing you again, hopefully in uh, in a couple of weeks. Fingers crossed for tomorrow night. Habs finish off the Golden Knights. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Peter. Great it's, to talk to you. It's as good as done. It's a you know, it's as good as a done deal. It's like England. Man, are we doing well in Euro twenty twenty? <laughs> I mean, we are the team. This is the year. This is the year. Rule Britannia, baby. Okay, that's it. Take it easy. Yeah, you too. And uh, bye. Thanks, everybody. Good to talk to you. You've been listening to The Bridge. I'm Peter Mansbridge, and we'll be back with The Normal Bridge in 24. Oh, listen, by the way, if you want to write, this is the week to write. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The weekend special coming up on Friday will be the last one for a little while. So any thoughts you have, big thoughts, little thoughts, get them in now. All righty. Talk to you tomorrow.